I think there is often a sense of there being something of a mystery about the relationship between the practices, the techniques we develop, and the kind of depth of insights that we really seek to nurture. There often doesn't seem to be a direct link between techniques and practices of meditation and insight. That mystery is one that just is. Um, The practices and styles of meditation, which are so countless, really, in different traditions, they don't come with particular guarantees. You know, that if you do this, you'll have calmness. If you do this, you'll have loving kindness. If you do this, you'll have compassion. And if you do something else, you'll have something else. They don't actually offer that kind of guarantee. But what the styles and practices that we undertake do is that they really help us to nurture inward, inwardly a climate of heart and mind that is really receptive to insight. It is almost as if the practice of meditation certainly doesn't guarantee enlightenment, but the practice of meditation makes us enlightenment prone because it creates a quality or helps to, they help to nurture a quality of stillness inwardly in which we come to understand the nature of our life, the nature of the moment. And it is that understanding which helps us to find more spaciousness, more balance, and indeed more freedom. Yet this is something that is very difficult to measure. And I think for many people, the difficulty in measuring their practice is something that can create a lot of agitation. You know, I, I sometimes I feel that if we had more, more kind of definite goalposts in this practice, people would be a lot happier. You know, if we said, okay, first day of the retreat, you know, three breaths in a row, that's it. You know, it's all you've got to go for, and if you can do that, you know, that's progress. You know, and if we came in the second day of the retreat and said, okay, today's goal is, you know, four breaths in a row, you know, five renunciations, and, you know, etc., etc., it would almost make our practice be held with a certain, within a certain greater feeling of security, which I think often people feel that they miss in this practice. Because it's really difficult to evaluate where you are. It's difficult to evaluate progress, if we use that word. There's a few lines I came across some time ago which made me think of this. Peter Leggett says, Watermelons and meditation students grow pretty much the same way. Long periods of sitting, till they ripen and grow, all juicy inside. But when you knock them on the head to see if they're ready, sounds like nothing's going on. 
And it struck me how it kind of struck a chord of responsibly when I read this. When I you come on retreat and we have very long periods of sitting, long periods of walking, we have silence, and apparently we're really doing very little. And it would be rare, I think, for anyone to be able to come out at the end of a sitting or the end of a walking period or even the end of a retreat with a kind of long list that they could articulate of what they've accomplished and what they've achieved. It's very hard to find evidence, isn't it, in this practice? It's very hard to find definitive evidence or signposts that tell us what we've got rid of and what we've gained, you know, what we've managed to achieve and what we've managed to erase. It's very difficult to find indicators of progress. And if very, many people are often tempted to say, because it's what they feel, that they, they feel that they're not getting anywhere in their practice, that nothing much is happening. They hope that they're ripening and growing. And yet in the absence of these kind of definitive indicators, it's almost as if that's a kind of leap of faith, a leap of trust. Although it's not entirely a leap of faith. I personally often feel really odd when I teach retreats to see how quickly people begin to wake up. It's not that, oh yes, I've got some huge experience, or I've got rid of this, but suddenly how really little time it seems to take to really just start to be much more aware of what's happening in the moment, of what's happening in ourselves. And, and I think sometimes we can underestimate the power of that awareness. And yet, even as we sit and sometimes feel like, you know, I'm not getting anywhere, I'm not making progress, we're aware of how juicy it all is inside. If you reflect on possibly how many thoughts have you thought today? How many sensations have you been aware of in your body that have spoken to you about the life of your body? How many sights and sounds, tastes, touches have you received today as you've moved through the day? And we think about how juicy our responses are to all that we receive. All the things we like and all the things we dislike and all the things we'd like more of and all the things we'd like less of and our hates and our, and our preferences. We sense how juicy we are inside when we listen inwardly and all of the different voices that have made an appearance today. The voice of the judge shouting, whispering, the voice of the critic, the voice of the commentator, the voice of the self-congratulator, 
the voice of the doubter that have visited us today. And if you reflect also back on the day today, think of how many conversations you've had in silence. You know, conversations with yourself and the conversations with all of these other people that you've had today. You know, your colleagues at work that aren't here, your friends, your family, your partners, all the conversations you've engaged with today. In fact, as we begin to be more aware, we actually sense how much that awareness brings our inner world to life. We become aware of sometimes of how full we are, how full life is. Sometimes we feel overfull. And we see that this is the place of our practice, is sometimes to learn how to empty a little. And there's nothing really strenuous about learning how to empty a little. As we learn to be attentive, to be present, to be committed to being present, we do empty a little. But we also sense that the invitation of our practice is really to be awake to the life that is there. To be awake within this life. Perhaps we sense as we practice we, we, of the, the invitation of meditation to really take our seat in this life, to be here, to to learn how to listen, to learn how to sense, to learn how to be awake. Certainly within this tradition you will hear over and over again that everything that we seek for, the wakefulness, the depth, the openness, the understanding, is not going to be found anywhere outside of this moment. That everything we seek for is not going to be found anywhere outside of this body, this mind, this heart, this life. And the practice of peace and the practice of wakefulness, in a sense, is so simple. It's learning to turn towards what is here. What is with us in this moment to open to us. Now part of us, I think, does accept this. You know, I think part of us, at least intellectually, acknowledges that, that a meditative path doesn't ask us to kind of bypass ourselves on the way to enlightenment. And we're not asked to kind of leapfrog over the experience and the life of our body, heart, and mind. But I think part of us also resists this. Sometimes we're looking for something more special or we're looking for something more transcendent um, or we just really don't like what's going on and we think that meditation has to be somehow more exciting, somehow more spiritual, more blessed, more, uh, I don't know, what we would call it, more, more miraculous than this that is right in front of us. It is interesting to 
acknowledge and to be aware of how much time, not only on retreat, but at other moments of our life, how much time seems to be given to fleeing from what is. To fleeing from this moment, to fleeing from our bodies, to fleeing from our thoughts, from our minds, from our experience of this life as it is. And how much of our practice is not so much about being, you know, a terrific breather, you know, or perfect at breathing, but how much our practice is really devoted to almost releasing that habit of fleeing or that habit of disconnection. Most people, before they come on a retreat, tend to have at least a few thoughts about what their retreat is going to be like. For people who haven't been on a retreat, sometimes, you know, you've read the books, you've listened to the stories, and, you know, it all sounds quite glamorous and, you know, far out and, you know, really deep. For people who've been on retreat before, sometimes their their thoughts about the the retreat that is coming is often based on past experience. So very often when we come into retreat, we find ourselves coming with certain expectations. I mean, sometimes it's expectations of agony and sometimes it's expectations of ecstasy. A thousand and one times we, we often hear ourselves being cautioned against having expectations when we come and practice. I mean, personally, I think that's sometimes a little bit naive. And actually, I sense that sometimes our expectations truly can be somewhat helpful. I mean, it's probably our expectations that got us here rather than sitting on a beach in Greece for example. You know, it's our expectations, our our sense of possibility of what might be possible for us in practice that actually brings us not only to a retreat, but also brings us to come back again and again, to sit on a cushion, to walk in meditation. There are a lot of ways that we, we underestimate the kind of faith that we have in ourselves. I mean, you've probably noticed that we were not prone to take registration in the meditation hall. You know, we don't have a little list here beside us that we tick off who's here and, you know, who's not here. It doesn't go on some sort of report card. And I'm often somewhat, you know, very touched when I see the, the kind of faith and the kind of intuition that really brings people back into this room again and again. And sometimes I know that people are actually having really quite a hard time. You know, they, they might be struggling with a lot of body pain. There might be a lot of inner chaos. And I don't know if you ever ask yourself, what is it that brings you back? What is it that encourages you to turn up again for yourself, for the moment? And that there is within, I think, most everybody who has made it to the end of the second day, 
a real spark of intuition that is about our own possibilities of awakening and deepening. And that faith, although it's often quite invisible to us, is actually something that's very powerful. Because it's often that faith in ourselves that really allows us to kind of stay steady with those times that are really shadowed or dark or conflicted or difficult to keep turning up for ourselves. And I hope you get the sense in the practice that when you come and sit, when you go to walk, that there really is that way in which you are turning up for your life, that you're showing up for yourself. And that is perhaps what is needed above everything else to awaken and to deepen in understanding. It's really fine to have expectations in many ways, but it's also fine and, and equally important not to allow those expectations to turn into some kind of demand of how things should be. Because inevitably, we will be surprised on retreat. You know, some people come, they expect they're going to spend a week tortured, and it's, it's peaceful. You know, some people come, they expect they're going to have a week of peace, and it's tortured. And it's not as if, you know, our, our practice delivers on demand what we have expected life and our meditation will continue to surprise us moment to moment. And I think part of that whole spirit of awakening is really being willing to be surprised. In fact, it seems to me that part of our capacity to grow as human beings lies in that willingness to be surprised. If we are so so set in our ideas of how I am, how you are, how things should be. If we have a difficult sitting and then expect it to be repeated in the next sitting, if we have a sitting that is absolutely glorious and then demand that that be repeated, it's almost as if we're always kind of one step behind reality. If we have an encounter with another person and then decide that's how they how that person is, that they're a difficult person, they're, they're, they're a distraught person, they're a terrific person. If we then go into meeting that person again in the next moment with that image and expectation, it is like we, we have surrendered that capacity to be surprised. And again, we can be that one step behind reality. So in a way, in meditation practice, I think part of being present is really cultivating that capacity to be touched by what is. The capacity, in a way, to be surprised. To be open to whatever arises in the moment. Whether we find ourselves abiding in the heavenly realms or lost in the hell realms, in a way, it really doesn't matter. In a way, that's kind of secondary. What is much more important, much more primary, is our willingness to be 
with just what is in that moment. To make peace with it, to befriend it, to be connected, to be intimate. Certainly meditation practice is not intended to create a standard form of experience that we add to our spiritual portfolio. And sometimes I feel that, that we have such strong images of what we should get out of meditation. And it's almost like we're building up a portfolio or a resume, you know, of experience. You know, I've had this experience of impermanence, I had this experience of calm, or I had this enlightenment experience, I had this devotional experience. As if somehow it's a way of, of accumulating a kind of spiritual identity. It's not like that. I think much more our meditation practice is not so much about having certain experiences, but understanding the way that our hearts and minds can truly be transformed and changed through understanding and through connection. I don't know how it is for you, but I know very often for myself, meditation practice is very humbling. It's very humbling. You think things are going to be a certain way, or you think you are a certain way, and it's like the rug keeps getting pulled out under your feet. Or you think you've reached somewhere and it's going to last forever, and then it changes. Plus, I think this is one of the great blessings of meditation is that it is so deeply humbling. One of the first lessons we learn is that we are really just not in control. You know, this is such an illusion we foster in our life and we put so much effort into heroically trying to be in control of everything, of everyone, of ourselves. And we discover right away that we are just not in control. And I think that's amazing. I mean, maybe it seems obvious to you. But it's really humbling because it really kind of encourages to look again at how much of a sense of self and security and safety we, we pin so strongly on trying to be in control. And we're just not. It doesn't take us long to realize that. The retreat, I think, is a kind of crash course in learning about not being in control. I mean, when you have sat here, walked here over this last day or two, I mean, did you ask your body to ache? Probably not. You know, did you ask your mind to run riot? Did you invite the thoughts that you thought today? You know, did everything appear according to the menu that you put in? When you got up this morning, you know, did you get the calm you asked for and got rid of the agitation you wanted to get rid of? And, you know, did your body suddenly relax and your mind calm down, your heart open? Not. But just not in control. That's so interesting. I think mean, that is probably one of the scariest things to a lot of people in this life. It's feeling that they're not in control. And yet somehow it's such an important insight. 
because if we if we can meet that understanding in a really heartfelt way, we don't sink into chaos. But what we do surrender is so much fear and resistance and striving and forcing and pushing and demand. We actually surrender a lot of self. What is also interesting is that when we really understand that we're not in control, our greatest fear doesn't come true. Because our greatest fear about not being in, uh, about what will happen if we're not in control is that we will be out of control. Now when, when we see that we start to see very, very clearly that we're not in control, we discover that that fear is not actually true. We're not out of control. We don't necessarily, it doesn't mean that we dissolve into chaos, that everything falls apart and disintegrates and, you know, we have no direction in life and we become a kind of blubbering mass on a zafu. None of that happens. Because what we see is that we, we introduce, you know, we see that so much of what happens in life, actually everything that happens in life, arises because of conditions. You know, I, I mean, the rain falls because of conditions. You know, having a pain in our knee arises because of the conditions of our body. Arriving on a retreat with a mind that feels very overfull and agitated is probably born of the conditions of our life before we come here. But we see into this kind of swirling mass of conditions that we don't actually control. We introduce another condition of mindfulness, of intentional presence, of being connected. And we discover that even in the midst of this kind of flow of thoughts and feelings and body experiences that we don't control, we can find this place of stillness. We can find, find a refuge of steadiness, of balance, of ease, it comes. The center where I teach in California has uh, flocks, very big flocks of wild turkeys on the land. And the place where I stay is down near where the yogis park their cars. And there are nice cars in that parking lot, I have to admit. It's shining Californian cars. And the turkeys tend to go to the parking lot and they, when the sun's out, they see themselves reflected on the side of the car. And they, it seems to upset them greatly because they then just peck at their reflection. So you see all these, you know, these nice cars, you know, BMWs and this and that, and they're being pecked at by these tur turkeys all day long which I'm sure doesn't always make the car owners very happy. But it, it struck me as how often we have that kind of turkey mind. It, it's like when we sit and we're not, oh, we're not in control of what arises, it's almost like our practice then is a mirror for so much, isn't it? It's a mirror for everything. It's a mirror for all this wide variety of thoughts that come, some of them interesting, a lot of them just junk mail. You know, a lot of feelings get mirrored, memories, 
plans, ideas, some of them painful, some of them wonderful. And yet we see when we don't feel willing or trusting enough just to open to that, just to see it simply, then we turn into this kind of turkey mind. You know, we, we want it to go away, so we peck at it and peck at it and peck at it. That kind of resistance. And yet, it probably starts to come clear to us very quickly that the more we resist something is also the degree that we suffer. That when we learn to open, not sink, not flounder, that when we learn to open with interest, with curiosity, with the willingness to see, that's actually a point where a lot of the suffering and where a lot of the understanding and the compassion, the generosity and the kindness begins. Another of the lessons, I think, that are uh, the insights that come to us, comes to us very early on in the retreat, is that we see the tendency in ourselves to want to draw conclusions about everything. To, to want to know something or to be able to define things. Now we draw conclusions about a lot of things. We draw conclusions about ourselves, about other people, about how the world is. There are a lot of our views. Sometimes the conclusions come up in the form of judgments. Sometimes they just come up in the form of these absolute truths that we know. I think one of the things that we learn in meditation is the way in which some of these conclusions really camouflage or, or really undermine that capacity to be surprised. And how often our conclusions signal a kind of closing down, closing of a book often a kind of disconnection. Now we see this happen very often in a retreat. You know, we tend to be very alert to what's around us, that we're engaging with the world, and we, we want to keep defining it. You have a sitting that's difficult. How quickly the thought comes, you know, I'm just a terrible meditator. You have a sitting that much more delightful, the thought comes, I'm a wonderful meditator. Your roommate leaves their socks on the floor. They are such an unmindful person. You know, sometimes teaching retreats is so interesting when we, you know, we get feedback and input. You know, within a very short period of time, we can have one person saying, you know, oh, it is so wonderful, benevolent to be in this silence. And another person equally strongly, equally passionately feeling, you know, this silence is abusive. You know, it, it's alienating, it's disconnecting. You can have one person saying, oh, you know, that staff here are so caring. Another person saying, oh, it's also, uh, everybody's so insensitive. We can see how inwardly we're constantly trying to frame the world by our conclusions. Sometimes we dwell on them. We dwell on our thoughts. We dwell on a particular experience. 
and it becomes so definite for us in our mind. I think one of the great blessings in practice is learning to feel at ease in I don't know. It doesn't mean, you know, being lost in doubt or, or wandering or bewilderment. But learning not to close the book. Learning to be able to find, say, I don't know. And to feel really comfortable and at ease in that. In some ways, it's a way of acknowledging the reality of change. You know, what you experience today, you will not experience the same way tomorrow. A mental state that can seem so powerful and so overwhelming in one moment can be forgotten in the next. An experience in your body that can feel eternal can disappear in a moment of fantasy. There is so little in this world that actually stays the same. And I think part of, part of finding balance, part of finding a lot of spaciousness inwardly, is to kind of step back from the conclusions, the judgments, to acknowledge really how incredibly quickly things change. And to be made peace with that. To accept that, to open to that. To know that all we are asked to do there is really just to be present. You know, sometimes you sit and you can have, you know, you can have a multiple hindrance attack like Yanai was talking about this morning. And you think, oh, you know, it's such bad news. You know, there's a terrible sitting. I'm such a bad meditator. Well, how do you know? You know, in that, in that sitting where you're having that multiple hindrance attack, you might be actually learning some of the most important lessons about patience and perseverance and steadiness and acceptance and equanimity. You know, you can have another sitting that you call a good sitting mostly because it conforms to some sort of image of how our meditation should be, you know. And immediately we're making all these plans, you know, about doing a three-month course, becoming a hermit, you know, the lifetime dedication to the Dharma, you know, suddenly we're this great devotee, we say, it's such a good city. Well, how do you know? It can also be the time when you're most kind of reinforcing this kind of clinging, grasping mind, you know, that says, this is how I have to be, how my meditation should be. The truth is that we just don't know. And all that we're really asked to do is, whether it is difficult or wonderful, whether it's so uh, challenging or seemingly overwhelming or, or just so useful, is just to continue to show up for it. Once I sat in a monastery in Thailand, you know, where, like many meditation centers, it was in a constant state of construction. And it was constantly noisy. There was never a moment quiet in that monastery. You know, if they weren't hammering and sawing, you know, there were radios playing and dogs barking and people talking and people would even come in the monastery to try and sell you things. And, you know, I, I had a, a little kuti, you know, a little hut in the women's quarters. And they used to do tour trips to my kuti, 
you know. And I would be sitting and suddenly the door would be flung open, you know, and one of the people from monastery would be there with a, a group of local villagers who were touring through, you know, and they'd kind of point and smile and chat and say, look at her, you know, he's meditating. You know, and this could happen any time of the day, or I just think, you know, that it was time to really have a, finally get a, a sitting in, and somebody would come and drag me out because it was full moon day, or new moon day, or quarter moon day, or some other moon day, which meant that we had to go to the hall to chant for three hours. And I never knew what was going to come, you know, and it struck me, a monastery really was one of the wildest places to sit in the world. And I remember, and I got and I went to the abbot, and I said, you know, you know you're, you're nuts. I said, you know, how do you expect me to practice in this? You know, how, how do you expect me to meditate with all this? I, you know, and he was, answer was really simply, he said, how can you not? Which is a good question. How can you not? I mean, what are we doing if we refuse to be present with what is? What are we doing if we, if we turn away from whatever is actually coming to us? What, what are we doing if we decline the invitation of the moment? Mostly we're just disconnected. We're, or we're living in some kind of fantasy or thought created the world. And in a way, it is a question of how can we not? How can we not be present with this? Is there another way to peace? Is there another way to understanding? Is there another way to balance? The last of the uh, insights I'd like to talk about tonight that I think comes very quickly to us on a retreat is really about dukkha. You know, um, some of you I, I know certainly who've done some reading about this tradition come across this word dukkha, which is sometimes translated as suffering, but I think a more accurate translate, translation is unsatisfactoriness. And in this tradition, the Buddha talked a lot about unsatisfactoriness. Not in a grim way, you know, he didn't go around saying, oh, life is miserable and cruel and, you know, terrible and suffering. They did say there is unsatisfactoriness in life, and if there wasn't an awareness of unsatisfactoriness in life, there would be no inspiration for awakening. It is, for most people, actually, an understanding of unsatisfactoriness that really leads them to find the cause, to understand the cause, to, to seek for the cessation of suffering, and also to walk the pathway to the end of sorrow. But it begins with an awareness of unsatisfactoriness. But the Buddha taught, really encouraged us to understand what it is. I mean, some unsatisfactoriness in life, none of us are exempt from. I mean, you know, that we're all at some time going to be ill, our bodies are going to be frail, uh, they will age, we will die. There, there is unsatisfactoriness that, you know, that a perpetual life with a perpetually wonderful, terrific body and mind is really not an option for any of us. 
But there's also what the, the Buddha talked about, not just about dukkha, which is unsatisfactoriness, but he talked about dukkha dukkha, or double dukkha. And I think we learn a lot about dukkha dukkha in the early days of our retreat. And not dukkha dukkha is that extra layer of pain, of struggle, of sorrow that we can place upon the simple unsatisfactoriness. It's like if you walk out of this room and you stub your toe. Well, nobody says stubbing your toe feels good. It hurts. It's un- it hurts. It's painful. You know, it, it, it's suffering. You know, there's this other piece about why was I such a fool to stub my toe? You know, if I'd been more mindful, I certainly wouldn't have stubbed my toe. You know, or who put that piece of furniture there for me to stub my toe on? You know, there must be some unmindful person in the world. Life is unfair. It's always been out to get me. I all, these kind of things always happen to me. That's double dukkha. That's dukkha dukkha. You have to look where the suffering is. Is it in the stubbing of the toe? I mean, that hurts, certainly. But where is the real suffering? It's in that extra layer of aversion, of craving, of resistance, of blame, of judgment. And we see that much of the suffering in our life actually lives in this second realm of double dukkha, of dukkha dukkha. You know, a thought arises. Well, we all have thoughts. They rise and they pass. You know, maybe you have a thought about yourself. We occasionally have thoughts about ourselves. You know, about how, you know, uh, some experience you have in your meditation, maybe you're a little distracted, you know. It's unsatisfactory, yes. And then the story that we write about it. You know, I was always hopeless, you know, I was hopeless as a girl guide or a ballot boy guide, you know, I was hopeless here, I was hopeless there. You know, I'm always going to be helpless. You know, my life is a calamity. That's the double dukkha. We also start to see that that's actually really not a life sentence. That is the liberating news. It's not a life sentence. The more clear we are, the more present we are, the more we discover our capacity to simply withdraw our consent from engaging in dukkha dukkha. We learn, in a nutshell, how to let it go. And we also begin to sense how that letting go is genuinely an act of kindness for ourselves. How it's genuinely an act of compassion for ourselves. In this tradition, the, the story of the young Prince Siddhartha leaving home and and entering into a life of homelessness is often presented as the model of renunciation. I think for many people, when they come into practice, into a retreat, the big renunciation is not so much about leaving home. The big renunciation is about letting go of the habit of abandoning themselves. It's a kind of unwise homelessness. Start learning to be at home in their bodies, in their hearts, in their minds, in this life just as it is. 
because that's where the peace is. It's where the equanimity is. It's where we find the freedom of not being imprisoned or entangled anywhere and yet also not being disconnected anywhere. In that sense, I think of meditation practice is really this art of intimacy, the art of coming closer to ourselves, the art of coming closer to the moment. And more and more we come to understand in that art of coming closer to ourselves and coming closer to the moment, how much really we are letting go of. How much we're letting go of fear, how much we're letting go of anxiety, how much we're letting go of resistance. And we also understand that everything we're letting go of, it's not, we're not letting go of anything that serves us well. What we are really letting go of is all of that that actually undermines our well-being. In this art of intimacy, it's not complicated. You know, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a professional meditator. You don't have to have, you know, a million lifetimes of meditation experience. This art of intimacy is something we forge in the moment. And we reforge it, and we reforge it to come closer just to what is. We have a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.